Moving on in the book of Ephesians, we've got this week, and then we've got uh, probably just one more week. And remember, we're going to be taking a break for about a month before we kick off a study in Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And um, we're going to give ourselves a little bit of break as we go over the Easter um, season. I don't know, is there a season for Easter? Um, But it'll be good. So we should have one more week, and we're going to talk about spiritual warfare next week. Now, I'll give you guys a little bit of an assignment. Um, I'd you write down five things that you are close to, that you're most connected with. Uh, it could be people, it could be things, it could be whatever. Um, you guys got that down? You got five things? Good? Kind of? Okay. Well, let's start um, this way. Someone comes along and takes away one of those things. Scribble out which one goes first. This is more fun for me than you. And then tell me what a uh, couple of what you got. What did you scribble out? Anybody? Throw it out there. Therapy program. Therapy program. All right. Yoga class. Yoga class. Made the list. Anyone else? What'd you What'd you scribble out? What was the first one off the list? The Netherlands. The Netherlands? Your homeland. <laughs> All right. Boy, this got serious quick. Okay, someone comes along and knocks out a second one. Scribble the next thing off the list. And tell me what you scribbled off. Feel free to throw it out there. So your friends? Bye, friends. They're gone. School's gone. Work? That one could be good to be gone. (laughs) Anyone that really hurt? Anyone sad over the one they just got rid of? No, not yet. Gosh, you guys connected to anything? Let's see what happens here. Number three, someone comes along, takes away a third thing. What gets scratched off the list next? <laughs> Come on, this is fun. This is fun. But you don't have a choice. Entertainment. What else? Work. Family. Food. <laughs> You're not going to live very much longer. This is this is really getting to the core. Sports. It stinks. Um, okay, you know the drill. One more thing taken off the list. So you just have one thing left. What um, what just got scratched off? Church family. You abandoned us. My family. Your family. Immediate family. Fam. Friends. So work, family, friends, they're all gone, aren't they? What is remaining? What's your last one? Um, Look at you, Christians. God is your last one. Boy, you. Now, picture someone uh, comes along and takes all of those at once. Um, Welcome to slavery. That's what we're going to be talking about tonight. Uh, It's hard for some of us to relate to because we don't see ourselves um, as slaves and our country hasn't dealt with it in the same way that it used to for quite a while. And so we're going to be talking about um, masters and slaves tonight. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5 through 9. And the topic is, I am rewarded 
Some of us are going through hard times, and certainly in the context of um, slaves and masters, and as we'll talk about uh, the second half of this message, employees and employers, or simply being in or under authority, the instructions are for all of us, Um, and we're going to see what that means. This is one of those passages, and I don't know if you find this on a regular basis, where you just come upon in Scripture and you say, what do I do with this? Like, what does this mean, and how does this apply? And, oh, gosh, I, I, I know the general topic, but I'm not quite sure why it says what it says about it, and you don't know what to do. Well, here's what's going on. Remember, Paul is in prison, and he is writing this to the church in Ephesus, and apparently they've got slaves and masters, and they're worshiping together. Awkward, huh? You think it's weird when you're at church and you see someone that you know. How about someone that you're enslaved to? Or, in some cases, if the slave is a spiritual leader and his physical uh, master is uh, worshiping, how awkward would that be? And so, we're going to walk through this, and we're going to be constantly kind of reminding ourselves this general question because we want to we answer it. Um, or if you're like me, you're thinking about this. Does the Bible condone slavery? Does it oppose slavery, or does it just say that we should endure slavery? And so we'll look at those things. And as we've walked through um, Ephesians, we have seen really over the last chapter and a half this big overarching theme, submission. And we in the church world will preach these in a bunch of different segments because we'll break it down and we'll talk about parents um, submitting and kids submitting to parents, parents submitting to the Lord, and uh, wives and husbands submitting to one another, and we break it down like that. But if you see all of this together, it's just submission, submission, submission. And now it's talking about slaves and masters. Of course, um, to submit is the big overarching theme, and we do this because it's a reflection and an implication of the gospel, that what you do here on earth is a reflection of how you interact with your heavenly father. So you can't say, I submit to my heavenly father, but not submit to anyone on earth. If you're a wife and you can't submit to your husband, but then you say, I'll submit to Jesus. Hmm. If Jesus says that husband, as flawed as he might be, is the head of the household, are you really submitting to Jesus? If you say, well, I'm a Christian, but I just won't work for any employer that doesn't agree with my philosophy on how things should be. So you find yourself unemployed because you can't work for anyone and you can't submit to anyone. Do you really submit to Jesus? So what we do on earth points to our relationship with the Lord. Let's jump on in. Five verses. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5. Bond servants or slaves. By the way, in many of your translations, there's a whole bunch of places in the New Testament where it'll say, whether bond servant or just servant, that it really should just say slave. But because of our history and the translation here in English, there's a lot of translations that just leave the word slave out. And so the Bible talks about slavery quite a bit more than we might realize especially in the New Testament. Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants or slaves of Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. So not only does it not flat out say, no, we hate slavery. Do away with the slavery, um, the social justice system that you're living in. It says you're a slave. If you're a Christian, you're a slave to Christ. Ultimately, we, we know the big point, the big picture of the Bible is that we have all become slaves to sin because of what happened in the Garden of Eden and the fall and Adam and Eve and sin entering the world. And we're going from slaves to sin to slaves of Christ. And what enslaves you might just be freeing if it's in Christ. It is freedom. And so, 
we are um, still slaves, but we're not slaves to sin. We're slaves to Christ. Doing the will of God from the heart. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. Whether he is a bond servant or he is free. That's the theme for tonight. We are rewarded as Christians. That's our identity. Regardless of your circumstances, regardless of if you like your boss or even if you're a slave or you're a master, we are rewarded in Christ. Verse 9, masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So over and over, Paul says, listen, I'm addressing what's happening socially. There's slavery going on, but I'm going to remind you, endure, 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 because you're ultimately all slaves to Jesus. And there's freedom as a slave to Jesus. And so you can freely submit, um, even in a broken world. Doesn't Well, we'll just let the rest of this play out a little bit. So, instantly, when you think of slavery, what do you think about? Probably American slavery, right? And that's what we tend to do because we look at this book and recognizing um, that the Word of God is timeless and it is obviously thousands of years old, but we put our definition of things into scripture. We've got to be careful we don't do that. There's two two primary ways to read scripture. One of them is called eisegesis, another is called exegesis. Exegesis is the good way. This is what good Bible students will do, meaning um, exegesis is to draw out from. So you are taking the word of God and you're not putting your presuppositions on it, your experience, what you want it to say. You're just reading it and letting it tell you what it means. Then eisegesis is when you come with an agenda. You say, I've got life experience. I've got what I want Scripture to say, and so I'm going to read it in a way that, that puts my definition of things onto it. I'm not going to let the Word of God speak for itself. I'm going to speak for it. Now remember, we're just messengers. We're not editors, and so we've got to be careful not to do that. Now, when we think about American slavery, we think, in context of this, why doesn't Paul just condemn it? Why doesn't he condemn slavery? Because we're aware of American slavery. Surely there can be no type of good slavery. Well, again, he's preaching to people who live in the Roman Empire. And there was slavery. Matter of fact, probably six million slaves in the Roman Empire during this time. And there was both just and unjust slavery, as we'll talk about soon. But before we jump into that, let's just cover our own nation's history, because that's going to be on the forefront of our minds. And so let's talk about American slavery and the sins that um, were bound up in it. This isn't all of them. This is some of them. If you ever wonder, why does the Bible in some cases just, just say endure slavery, and yet we know slavery seems so evil here? Is it evil? Does the Bible say that what happened in America in the last 300 years is okay? Nope, it doesn't. Number one, American slavery was built on racism from West Africa. We took um, a whole bunch of people and through the Caribbean, Jamaica, lots of those islands came slaves and it was based on skin color. A good chunk of it was racist. And we know that we are all created in the image of God and nowhere is racism condoned. And American slavery was founded on racism and viewing uh, some races as inferior to others, and obviously vice versa, some superior to others. That would be Caucasian. Number two, it was a lifetime sentence. This is important. It was a lifetime sentence. Um, 
there is a version of slavery that's not. You look at um, Jacob. So go back to Genesis. Jacob was in servitude essentially to Laban uh, for seven years. Why? To marry Rachel. (laughs) And then it turned into Leah. And then another seven years, it was Rachel. Um, That was his own choosing. But there's uh, slavery that's a full lifetime where you don't get a choice. You're locked into it and, and it's over. It's gone. Just like the exercise we did at the beginning. What if you had all these things and then boom, they're taken from you. You didn't choose it, but now you're being used for someone else's good. And you have no choice in the matter. And that was American slavery. It it wasn't um, an exchange of goods. It wasn't a Jacob situation with Leah and, and Rachel. It was a lifetime sentence. Number three It was generational, meaning there was a legacy of slavery. So you're not only going to be a slave, but in American slavery, your children were property of the slave uh, trader or your master, and you were going to have your whole family without a choice. They don't get to choose. So if you're born into it, you just keep on going. And until someone breaks that chain, then the slavery continues. It goes on and on and on. And that, um, well, let me just ask you. That's what happened at the end of Genesis. Remember that? 400 years, Israel, Egypt. Did that go well for the Egyptians? When it's all said and done. I mean, they had them for 400 years, generation after generation. But there was a little thing called the 10 plagues and um, things didn't go well for them um, because God ultimately got them out of it. Now, God allowed his people all throughout the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, to be enslaved to be carried off. There were exiles, Assyria, the Babylonians, um, the Persians, Daniel, uh, Jeremiah, so many of those prophets. If you read in there, they were taken in exile into other foreign lands. And God sometimes let that happen as punishment. Sometimes God let it happen and then heard the cries of his people and delivered them from that, like Egypt. Um, But American slavery had no end unless somebody put an end to it. And so it was generational. Number four, they viewed um, humans as property, not people. It wasn't just a matter of um, disrespect, right? We're all created in the image of God. And so American slavery said, well, there are going to be some animals that or some humans that are essentially animals. And they are uh, two-thirds of a person or whatever it might be. And so they don't actually even get a vote as a full human. And that's after slavery. But anyway, um, so you look at it and you say, well, not only is it an incredible sign of disrespect and ungodliness to see a human created in the image of God as something other than human, but it completely flips the created order. You look at, um, you look at what we're studying in our men's study and, and what manhood means. And God created uh, Adam. And so there is God, there is man, there is woman taken from Adam. And the created order then is animals put under both of them. And then Satan wants to flip that on its head. So Satan enters a, a snake, a serpent, and, and then he speaks to the woman. And the woman then um, gets the, the guy in trouble and then they want to be God. And so the whole created order was slipped on its head. An animal ruled and dictated woman and woman dictated man and man wanted to ultimately be God. And so everything was flipped and slavery is ultimately saying we're going to take humans and we're going to um, view them as animals and, um, and it breaks the created order because we're not animals. If you really want to, if you really want to dig in, you should check out some of the founding fathers 
and uh, their wills and what they beseeched and how they viewed some of the humans um, working for them. I'll just leave that on your on your table uh, for you. Let you have that as some homework. Um, so American slavery was obviously sinful. Um, so does the Bible oppose? Does it condone or does it set, tell us to endure slavery? Well, let's, let's talk about opposing. Some people will say this. You'll hear this on occasion. Say, you're a Christian. Yes, I'm a Christian. So you love slavery. Well, no, what are you talking about? Don't you know the Bible condones it? Doesn't ever oppose it. And you say, you should, we should just read a little more about the Bible. Um, here's the same Paul who writes Ephesians. You say, why didn't he just just say something about opposing it here in um, in Ephesus? But you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. And Paul says to Timothy, the young pastor, so he's teaching him this, and he says, we know that the law is good when used correctly, for the law was not intended for people who do what is right. It is for people who are lawless and rebellious, who are ungodly and sinful. So these are not very good people who consider nothing sacred and defile what is holy. So this is, so these are the bad guys who, who, who would make up some of these nasty, sinful, broken human beings? And he says, who kill their father or mother. So murderers or commit other murders. The law is for people who are sexually immoral or practice homosexuality or are, what does it say? Slave traders, liars, promise breakers, or anyone who does anything else that this is, here's what the Bible says, contradicts the wholesome teaching that comes from the glorious good news. That's the gospel entrusted to me by our blessed God. Pretty obvious it's saying, this is all written, all this law, it was written for people like the slave traders. Because obviously, that's not good. That's not God's plan. That's not his will. He doesn't like that. So, the Bible does condemn it. Now, um, let's do just a little more context work. I told you earlier that some forms in the Roman Empire are just and some are unjust. Um, let's talk about those. Here's a couple that are just. Here's a couple that are unjust. So if you're reading this and you're saying, okay, okay, I get the American slavery thing. The Bible says this was not good. What happened in America? Um, now, what about the, the context of this passage 2,000 years ago. Let's talk about the Roman Empire. Here's uh, four common ways that someone would enter slavery. And a couple of them might be okay. A couple of them, obviously not okay. Number one, paying off debt. So you guys go and you buy a car or you buy a house. And you got to have something on loan papers, if you take out a loan, called collateral. What do you do 2,000 years ago if you don't have anything as collateral? You could write into the loan yourself. <laughs> yourself. And it's not uncommon, or it wasn't then, for human beings to be collateral. So if they had debts that were not paid off, then they would work it off. We joke about it, right? If you're a teenager and um, you want to skip out on your food at a restaurant, we say, well, you just go back there and wash dishes for a while. Like, and we, guess what? That was a real thing. People would use themselves as collateral for debt. But if you wanted those things and you couldn't meet the, the payments... Is that just or unjust for you to have to work it off? Well, it's probably pretty just. Number two, voluntary slavery. 
So some people, because of economic reasons in the Roman Empire, would choose to become slaves, right? If you're poor, you look for things that will help your family out. Some people do that with, like, the military. There's lots of good reasons to be part of something like a military. People say, well, I want to serve my country. I want to do things. Some people say, I just don't know what other job I could get. I'm going to go to the army. People do that. Uh, When I was in jail years ago, and it was the fall, and by the end of it, it was mid-November, and I would have, uh, on a daily basis, see guys, they would come in, and they would uh, be there for petty crimes, and I would hear a couple of them say, three hots in a cot, three hots in a cot, three hots in a cot, and I was like, what's going on? And I, what I learned is there's a lot of people who commit petty crimes all around our nation, particularly in the northern parts, because over the winter times, they want to go into jail because there's three hots in a cot. And some people just use that as a way to have shelter because it's better than the alternative. If you're homeless and you're living in like Minnesota, would you rather go to jail for the winter or would you rather live on the streets? And some people make that choice. And you say, well, that sounds weird. It happens. It happens all the time. But some people would voluntarily say, my family and I, we are going to starve to death. And there is no Democrats in the Roman Empire wanting to give us some program to feed us. (laughs) What do we do? We can starve to death or we can work for you. And so they would let themselves voluntarily be slaves. That's a just thing. That's a just, again, not a lifetime thing. But they decided to do this together. Number three, prisoners of war. So this is what people did in the Roman Empire. Um, The Roman Empire wanted the Roman Empire to expand. And so they went out and took other nations and other armies. And there are people who are are byproducts. They they come in because they were captured. And so innocent people who were captured. Um, You ever wonder what the, the religion was of the Roman Empire? Um, all through the Gospels, and you hear about man Pilate and all these different Roman guys. What, what did they believe? What did they believe? Well, they ultimately believed in emperor worship. So whoever um, whoever was on the throne in the Roman Empire was God until he died, and then he wasn't God. But they ultimately had what they call syncretism, which was a gathering of the best parts of all the religions of the places they conquered. They would bring them together and take the best pieces. Um, some people do that in America. They just say, oh, you know what, I don't know what I'm going to believe. And they take a little bit of each religion because their friends tell them in the dorms what's cool and what's not. And they kind of throw it together. And so some say, well, I like to meditate with a little bit of karma in my life. And then I'm going to do some Christian good deeds for my neighbor down the road. Like they throw it all together. It's called syncretism. But prisoners of war were people who came, obviously, um, in unjust ways to be slaves. And number four, abandoned infants. So we talked about this last week. Um, There were, we talked about this a couple times. There were in the Roman Empire, lots of abandoned infants. And um, basically they had a primitive form of abortion. Instead of having the surgery while the child was in the womb, they would let the child be born. They'd put the child in trash heaps. They would put them in the wilderness. Um, They would reject them and people would come around and they would take them. They would feed them, raise them up, and then just use them as slaves. Men would do forced labor. Women would be prostitutes, but that person would get their return on investment by working them. And that's obviously unjust. So let's get back to the text. I promise you, maybe not, I shouldn't promise. I'm very confident this will get more practical for you. Um, unless maybe you're, um, well, anyway. Okay, <laughs> let's talk about Ephesus. 
slaves, masters, obviously worshiping together, um, and both were given instructions. Now, for us, what do we do with this? Obviously, there are social justice issues in our world, and I think we all need to be concerned about human trafficking. If you don't think that slavery and human trafficking, if you don't, don't think that it happens in America, you got to open your eyes. Um, we live in a place that is a little bit prone to it because of the interstate and 135. But you go up to, say, like Omaha, you get on I-80, do some research on on I-80, and you're going to have tons of truckers. You're going to there are there are a lot, a lot of uh, cases of human trafficking all around our country and in the interstates. Um, well, they just funnel it. So, um, but what do we do with, with with this passage? For us, we obviously don't struggle. Um, most of us, I'm guessing, don't struggle with slavery as we've described in the Roman Empire or in the um, what we've had in our country. But there are principles that we can draw from those who are under authority and those who are in authority, or as we like to call employees and employers. So most of you have a job. Any of you have a job? Some of you have a job. Okay. Some of you have paid jobs. Some of you have voluntary jobs. Some of you have leaders. You have pastors. You have police officers. You have teachers. You have coaches. You have professors. And and some of you have people in your life that you're over authority. You have kids. And so you treat your kids a certain way. You have um, you have volunteers, you have employees. So this is going to relate to most all of us. And so let's jump on in and let's talk about those who are under authority, verses five through seven. So if you're an employee or you're a volunteer, this is for you. Six things we're going to pull from this. Number one, obey, obey your boss. How many of you um how many of you like it when people tell you what to do? Does that pump you up? <coughs> Doesn't pump up many of us, does it? But it happens. In America, what is the best company that you can work for? Like the best ultimately is yourself, right? Like that's what we all want. We think, what could I do that I would really love to do? I want to work for myself. I want to be self-employed. I want to do my own thing. Why? Because we don't want to be under authority. We rebel. We don't want to hear what someone else is going to tell us to do. We want to tell ourselves what we're going to do and be in control of our own days. And so um, we don't like to obey, but God tells us to obey. We can worship at work. Some of us worship our work. You've got to understand, Jesus, he, he, he tells us in Ephesians 2 that we were created for good works. Before the foundation of the earth, we were created for them. We all have good works, whether you're, again, um, an employee or an employer, whether you're a volunteer, whether you're a mama, all of it. We have things that we were created for. If you're a barista, if you are um, working at the gas station, if you're working at college, whatever you're doing, there are things that you can do that God created you to do. And so Jesus, his worship of the Lord did not start at his earthly ministry at 30 years old. It started at obedience. He can obey long before he had his earthly ministry. He worked as a carpenter. He did what his daddy did. And you can go to work and not worship your work, but worship at work and you can obey. You can obey regardless of your situation because ultimately you're obeying God.
Let me ask you, um, let me ask you this about your obedience at work. Some of you, you don't like your bosses very well. Maybe you don't like your job very well. Um, is your obedience conditional? Like, will you, do you, do you not want to obey what your boss verbally says, but, but what is written you'll obey? And you're constantly saying, well, look at the handbook or look at the guideline or, and you just reject what they say or vice versa. You'll say, well, I'll listen to them as they tell me stuff, but I ignore the employee handbook because I just don't even care what it says. I don't, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Or when they tell you to do something, is it conditional in that you will do what they say, but you'll only do a version of it, whatever your version is. You say, I hear what you say, but eh, I just don't like see it coming out of your mouth. And so I'm going to do kind of what you want done, but it's going to be my way. And so there's just enough pride. There's just enough insubordination in us to, to make us um, know that we're not doing this in a godly way, but you can get the job done. And so if someone says, are you obeying your boss? You can say yes, but are you obeying the Lord? And you can say no. Do you obey? Do you obey? What if I don't like my boss? You can obey. What if I'm smarter than my boss? You're probably not, but you can still obey. You guys having fun yet? Number two, as an employee, someone under authority, you can respect your boss's power with fear and trembling, it says. So do this with fear and trembling. That, that says, or that means a great, a deep respect. You see, you and I respect power. How many of you, if you go to the zoo um, and you see animals behind the, in, in the cages behind bars, you, you respect them? Let me ask you, if they got out of those cages, would you respect them? If you're staring them down and there's a lion, like you ever go to the zoo here in town and you see the two little lions or whatever, and you're like, they're kind of scrawny. This is like the Lonnie, little, what is that? The What's that book that we read all the time? Tawny Scrawny Lion. Yeah, that's like that. That's, that's, that's what it, They just sit there, they lay around, and you think, gosh, they're kind of wimpy. If they were outside of that cage, I guarantee you I would not call them wimpy. I would be scared for my life. And what happens is sometimes when you're disobedient to your boss and, and you don't respect your boss, you don't have a deep respect for him, you get comfortable and you forget the power that they have. And you forget that ultimately God is their boss and God can use his power through them. And some of us have been in that place. I remember when I was in uh, high school, I was a senior in high school and I didn't really like my football coaches and I respected some of them more than others. But there's one in particular, he was a first year head coach. He went to K-State and he was just kind kind of a punk. I don't know why. I just didn't like him at all. And I would tease him and I'd make fun of him and, and he would threaten me. And then one day he said, you're going to run. And I was like, no, no, I'm not. He said, no, you're going to run. And I was like, no, I'm not. He said, no, you're going to stay after and you're going to run. And I had to like make a decision. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is real. <laughs> this is real. Like I really have to actually obey him or there are consequences. And I ran and I ran and I ran and he could make me do whatever he wanted because he ultimately wasn't authority. I got way too comfortable, way too comfortable. You got to respect them because ultimately what you're respecting is not your boss's good job or their good judgment. You're respecting the boss above them. And that would be Jesus. It's his power. Number three, you got to check your heart. So, so do this with fear and trembling, obey with fear and trembling and obey with a sincere heart. How's your heart? Do you need 10 sermons on submission for you to act right? Or, or does the gospel, is the gospel your primary motivator? Do you find yourself um, frustrated with your boss? 
You find yourself not wanting to do what they say, or when you do do what they say, you don't do it with a pure heart. You know, one thing you can do for your boss that seems very obvious, but I'll mention it, is pray for him. Pray for him because, number one, you need to empathize with your boss. Sometimes there's um, a a separation. We get so used to um, bosses and employees, and if we're not a boss, then we don't recognize what bosses go through. And when you pray for someone, you will empathize with them more than you might even uh, on a personal level just by talking to them. But what prayer does is not necessarily changes their behavior, even though God could. It's going to change your heart for them. And you're going to recognize it's very, very, very difficult for you to be bad-mouthing your authority on earth when you're praying to your heavenly authority. Does that make sense? And God's going to convict you quick. So you can always tell someone who doesn't do their work with a sincere heart or pray for their um, employees if they're complaining, uh, employers if they're complaining a lot about them. Because it's very difficult to complain about them and pray for them at the same time. Number four, as you would Christ. So, Jesus is the boss. If you knew that Jesus was your boss, would it change your work ethic? If he was doing your performance review, would it change the way that you work? We think, oh, of course Jesus is our boss, but do you really, do you really work like he's the one calling the shots? This is why um, even when our bosses do unfavorable things, that we don't flip out because we got a bigger boss at work. And you got to recognize your boss might make a bunch of bad choices, but ultimately the Bible says there's no authority on earth that has, has somehow slipped out of the hands of the Lord. The Lord um, gives authority. Romans 13 and 14 talks about the authority, even the bad authority on earth. God recognizes and he is over them. And so your work is your witness. And we as Christians should look different than the world because we're serving God and not man. Number five, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers. Hmm. Do you steal from your work? Do you steal stuff? Expense reports? Do you, do you, do you just kind of mess them, mess with them a little bit? Do you, do you take supplies home? Do you clock out when you're supposed to clock out? Do you take a longer lunch break than you should? Do you do things one way when your boss is holding you accountable and then uh, another way when they're not? If you have freedom, do you abuse it? Uh, do you steal time from your employer? Do you find yourself goofing off with your friends at work? Do you find yourself searching the web and you know that you can get away with it, so you do it? Here's something that's important. You need to know, you guys already know, but I'll just reemphasize. You'll have a hundred opportunities every day um, to abuse your position, whether you are an employee or an employer. But when you're an employee, you got to recognize this thought in some form or fashion will come across your brain I can get away with this. I can get away with this. And you'll have to choose. Well, I could drive the long way home and then I'll get home, I'll get back to work um, right in time to get my lunch break or I could drive straight there and do five more minutes of work. Um, I mean, there's just a hundred opportunities all throughout the day where you got to choose. Am I going to abuse or not? Because Jesus is obviously always looking and it's important for us to not be a Judas and claim to be like Jesus. Don't be a Judas, but claim to be like Jesus. 
That was a good one. That was original. Gosh. Gosh. Sometimes. Sometimes I am. Um, all right, we'll move on. Last but not least, doing the will of God. Don't forget your purpose. So as bond servants of Christ, remember, you're slaves to Christ, which is actually freedom. And doing the will of God from the heart. Don't forget your purpose. Your work is worship. You can worship at work. Your heart matters. Uh, the people, the coworkers, the people you interact with, the public, that's your mission field. That's your mission field. Your behavior is your witness. Man, God can get a lot of glory from your job. As, listen, just as a church, if you said, what's the primary ministries? What does Cross Point, what does Cross Point do? We could have a thousand Bible studies. We could have a bunch of different opportunities, community events. We could do a bunch of stuff. If we just trained our people, and we try to emphasize this all the time, see your workplace as your mission field. Pray for opportunity. Be bold. Do what the Lord leads you to do. We would see the kingdom of God expand through the city like that. If people took that serious, you have access to people that maybe no one else in this church does. That's not, it's not random that you work where you work. How many times do we think about getting away from the very opportunities God gives us? I don't want to be in this city anymore. You're in this city. This is Nineveh. Do something with Nineveh. I don't want to work my job anymore. It's just not the career that I thought I would be in. It doesn't pay what I want. Who cares? Does your job involve humans? Yes, it does. Then see it as your mission field. See it as your mission field. There's so many opportunities. Don't forget. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. Over and over and over. Jesus is our boss. Jesus is our boss. Verse 8. Now, we, tr- we switch. That was for employees or those under authority. Now, those in authority. So if you're a boss, how many of you are a boss? Some form or fashion. If you're a coach, if you're a trainer, if you're a professor, if you're a teacher, if you have kids, if you, there you go, my wife throwing her hand up there. If you are um, obviously a, blo- a boss with uh, a company, whatever it might be, spiritual leader, lead a grow group, whatever it could be, you, you got authority. God's given you some influence. So this is for you. This is for you. Three things. We'll skip down to verse nine because we're going to finish with verse eight. Masters, do the same to them. So number one, humble yourselves. Humble yourself. Sometimes when people are given authority, they feel like they are better than other people. Somehow the authority given to me increases my self-worth and decreases yours. You say, that doesn't sound, that's what pride does to a heart. That's what pride does. It makes you think, it makes you equate authority with value, authority with worth. And so some of us lean on that and we say, well, listen, we can have a conversation. Guess who wins? The one with authority. And why does this one have authority? Because they must be more valuable. They must be worth more. You're not worth more than the people who serve with you or under you. And you've got to humble yourself. Every employee knows who holds the power. And they're looking to you and they think, okay, if you're of the kingdom here on earth, you're going to have some pride in your authority. But if you 
have the kingdom of God in your heart and you care about expanding it in the workplace, um, they're going to see humility and know this isn't the way the world does it. If you humble yourself, it's a huge witness. It's a huge witness. There's nothing worse than a wicked boss. Number two, it says, and stop your threatening. Now keep in mind, 2,000 years ago, the threatening they could be talking about is killing. We're going to kill you. As a slave, we own you, and we can take your life. Don't threaten, obviously, someone's life. But even, even more than that, um, do you abuse your power? Do you abuse your power? Again, people know this is the way of the world, that when you've got power, you can abuse it. Here's what I've found. One of the quickest ways um, to make people insecure around you and resent you is to threaten them. Well, if you don't do this, then this is going to happen. And listen, 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 listen. There's a huge difference between explaining someone's job description and even explaining consequences calmly and, and threatening them. People, people can tell. Mm, you're, you're, that, that's a power move. They can see it in your heart. It might be the tone in which you say. It might be the words that you say. But people can tell. People can tell. Here's what I found in, um, in ministry and leadership and in life. Um, people who tend to threaten other people when it comes to bosses threatening employees tend to ultimately be saying this. There's a problem. I don't have a solution, but I have power. <laughs> Equals threat. I mean, let's be honest. If you're a mom, if you're a dad, when do you threaten your kids? You're being a problem, child. I don't have a solution right now. I'm angry. Threat. <laughs> you're in a relationship. Someone's acting up. You're dating someone. You're married to someone. And you say, I got to get the control on myself. I don't know what to do. There's a problem. I don't have the solution. I'm threatening. You need to get out of the house. I'm leaving. This is over. Let's talk divorce. Threats tend to happen with people who have power but not solutions. And people who receive threats recognize, hmm, that's all you got. Because a good disciple maker, a good teacher, a good leader, a good employer will say, listen, I don't need to threaten you. I can make clear the consequences of decisions and actions, but I can help hone you, guide you in a path of righteousness so that you don't get to the point where you need to be threatened. And I would say this, flip it. Don't threaten them. Take care of them. Your employees need to know that you care for them. They need to know that you think about them, that your kids, your volunteers, whatever it might be, they, they want to know, do you care more about me um, than you care about gaining respect? Because here's the thing. Some people who are insecure in leadership, they will try to get respect by demanding it. But when you stop thinking about yourself and you humble yourself and you don't abuse power, but you say, I'm not going to threaten my people. I'm going to take care of my people. Then instead of demanding respect, you earn respect because they say you care more about me then you care about gaining respect. I'm going to respect a man like that. I'm going to respect a woman like that. That's meekness, isn't it? That's power under control. Number three, 
This is the last one for employers. Knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. He doesn't have favorites. Number three, Jesus is still your boss. Listen, listen, listen. And I find this in our culture all the time. I don't know if it's a cultural thing, if it's a generational thing, if it just happens all the time. But there are a whole bunch of people whose uh, their life goal seems to be to get out from underneath someone's authority. Think about it. Right now, who do we demonize in our culture? The government? Doesn't matter. Republican, Democrat. We, none of them, people don't like either one right now. Police officers. Would you like to be a cop right now? No. Firefighters, judges. In, in, in this postmodern kind of liberal culture, is it good to be a pastor? People don't like you. People, people don't hear, oh, you're a pastor. Great. I've been waiting for someone who can um, have authority over me that I can submit to. This is wonderful. Thank you for being. No, people, people don't like it. People don't like it. Even Christians will avoid um, getting connected to local churches because they like to be in this place of, um, oh, I can enjoy the blessing of the local church without having to submit to the local church. And I don't want to be under anyone's authority. And if anyone says anything I don't like, then I can just bail and go to the next one. You've got to be careful. There's, it is incredibly reckless, incredibly reckless to be in authority without being under authority. Are you a boss that serves your people like you are serving Jesus? Because you are. You are. Okay. You still find all this hard? You say, man, I'm an employee. I'm an employer. I'm in authority. I'm under authority. This is hard to do. It is. But here's the good news. Both are rewarded. This is the good news. Verse 8, knowing that whatever it, whatever good anyone does, that he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Here's what this is not. This is not karma. <laughs> this is not God saying, hey, if you just do some good stuff, then I'll pay you back. No, let, let me be very clear. As the whole of scripture makes clear, if your faith is not in the life, death, resurrection, and the righteousness of Christ, and that he died in your place, and that you are trusting him for the the consequence of your sins, and trusting he took the wrath of God, then you are spiritually dead, you're apart from Christ, and your good deeds are as filthy rags. So the Bible says they're filthy rags in the sight of God. But when you're in Christ, your good deeds have a reward. This is good. You're going to be judged for the things that we do and the resources that we have and how we live. And this can scare you or this can be exciting to you, but you're only going to accomplish this by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're rewarded. Some of us, as we wind this down, find great hope in this because we're in hard earthly circumstances. Some of you, you got teachers, you got bosses, you got people who are hard on you. You've been in some cases where you've, you've had some abuse, you got pain, you've had people abuse their authority, and you don't trust people right now. And you want out of circumstances. And some of those circumstances, God might be saying, you need to get out of it. But other circumstances, he's saying, you need to endure, because here's what Paul wasn't doing. Paul wasn't, Paul, Paul wasn't trying to, to change the social structure. He was trying to change eternity for the people within it. We've got a whole generation of people who care more about social justice than kingdom expansion. 
And we think if we could just rid the world of all the social issues, somehow it would be good. I think it's great. I think it's commanded in Scripture we should care about social issues. But we have to recognize there's even a, 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 if you thread the needle, there is a a deeper motivation. It's the kingdom of God expanding. And you got to be sharing the gospel and you got to recognize that some of our circumstances on earth may never change. We might be in hardship, but we are rewarded for what we are going through. And, And here's why. There's three things. There's three things. The rewards that Jesus has for us biblically. Number one, internally. Internally. You say, well, I want to do God's will, but I am struggling inside. Here's what happens. When you know what's right, and most of us know what's right, some of us ask, well, what's the right thing to do? But we know what the right thing to do is. In many cases, the Spirit's prompting us. We're just saying, it's just, I know what's right. It's just difficult to do what's right. You can have um, a clear conscience. Sometimes that's the only thing you get on earth. You can do the right thing, even when everyone around you at work, even when everyone around you is doing the wrong thing, you can have a clear conscience. You can have um, an opportunity to mature. This is internal growth. You can have an opportunity to uh, be changed, to be transformed, to uh, grow. You can have internal peace. You can have internal joy. You can have internal comfort, all from the Holy Spirit. And sometimes this means you're going to have to confess sin. Maybe you've done something wrong as an employee or an employer. Maybe you've done something wrong and abused power, or you are insubordinate to someone you're under authority to. You're like, this is going to be hard. How am I going to make this wrong right? And you go to the Lord for forgiveness, and then you live that out with your people. It's going to be difficult Repentance sometimes is really difficult. Sometimes we think of repentance and we think, well, I just got to ask God for forgiveness. Are we good? And then we just do whatever we want on earth. Sometimes, a lot of times, God's going to say, yeah, I forgive you, but you also need to go and make this right. You need to go tell your boss what you did. You need to go tell your employee that you're sorry and you need to make it right with people. But internally, even when the world is going the opposite direction of what you know is right you can have joy you can have peace um i even as a a pastor i've faced this you guys many of you have been here for more than a a couple years it was just a year and a half ago that we had to let a young man go who was our worship leader And, and i won't get into a bunch of details but it was behind the scenes um incredibly difficult for him for everyone involved and I knew immediately as a leader and as a pastor of this church, this is pretty much a lose-lose. When things are brought to your table, sometimes you know, if I go left in good judgment, some people will scrutinize it. If I go right in good judgment, others will scrutinize it. You you take church employees, someone doesn't live up to standards biblically, and you say, well, let's let them go. And the people who say, there's consequences for sin, great. But then the other people say, what about grace? And and then you say, you know what, we're going to not um, let someone go. We're going to um, help them and, and give them grace. And then people say, are there any standards at all for spiritual leaders anymore? Can you just do whatever you want? You see how, like, you're going to look bad in someone's eyes, but as a pastor, as uh, anyone in authority, you have to say, listen, I'm going to love God's people. I'm going to love the Lord. I'm going to do what's right. And even if everyone hates me, I've got to do what I know God is telling me to do 
what's best for everyone involved. And you can ultimately, as Jesus was, he was the fullness of grace and truth, offer both without the sacrifice of one or the other. And um, sometimes you just have a clear conscience, and that's the best reward. Number two, you can have external rewards. They're not guaranteed, but sometimes when you um, walk in godliness, (laughs) you might see earthly benefits. Again, this isn't guaranteed, but um, you might get promoted. You might see that um, people are looking for, even if they don't know the Lord, they're looking for godliness. And when they see it in you, they know that I want that person to work for me. I want them to work for me. Sometimes you don't see any external award and you say, well, there's no reward from this. I made a really hard decision. I did what I knew the Lord was telling me to do. Um, And a whole bunch of people hate me. And this stinks. But you know, maybe one person saw the Lord in my actions. Maybe one person I was able to be witnessed to. And externally, um, that's what you got. My little niece, she, so much of this is how you view life. My my little niece, she was running the other day at Grandma and Grandpa's house, and she um, was going by the couch, and she hit the side of the couch, and she kind of, tumbled over and she hit her face on just the corner of a coffee table. Um, and it like basically poked a little hole in her cheek and she was devastated and she had to get like eight stitches and she's four. And, um, grandma and grandpa were terrified. Everyone was like, Oh, this is horrible and whatnot. And she went and she got her stitches. And I asked her, uh, either today or yesterday, I, I saw her and I said, how you doing? And she's like, I'm doing good. I only got eight stitches. I didn't get nine. Okay. That's like, it still sounds horrible, but she was so excited. She got eight. She didn't get nine. Apparently nine was the the number she didn't want to get to. Sometimes you find yourself doing the right thing at work and, and you're like, you know what? This stinks. But maybe someone saw the Lord. Maybe someone saw the Lord. And last but not least, eternal, eternal rewards. We're going to live with God forever, not because you do good deeds at work, but because Jesus died on the cross for you. The key is your perspective, recognizing I am going to suffer through some of the temporary things on earth because I have eternity with Christ. And it's good to please him on earth and do things the right way and to walk in holiness because one day that's going to be the only way. And there's not going to be an opportunity to do wrong in heaven. And so it's good to get used to the righteousness now. Now, if you guys um, were um, thinking about an investment, what's a better return on investment? If you had to choose to get a little bit of something good now or a whole bunch of something good later, which one is better? What would you take? Yeah. Welcome to life on earth. You're going to suffer through some bad stuff at work, and yet you find, hey, I'm going to be eternally with Christ. I know I trust in him and, and I'm going to be, um, I'm going to be choosing perseverance. Here's, here's something awesome. Let me just, let me wrap this up for you just with, with the gospel, because without it, none of this means anything. Um, there's a, there's a sister passage to this that Peter writes about, and I'm just going to read the passage for you and, and then I'm going to let you go here in a second. It says in first Peter chapter two, verse 18, Servants or slaves, see how this parallels what we just read. 
Be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good, so there's some good masters, and gentle, but also to the unjust, so just and unjust slavery. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, so you're thinking of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin, you are beaten for it, you endure? Right? Bad people do bad things and they get bad consequences. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That might be your circumstance right now. You did the right thing, but you're still suffering. For to this you have been called because, here's it, here it is, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. This is why we do what we do. So that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You see how these two passages are hand in hand? He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were, you were strain like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Jesus did good works. Jesus did good works. We have good works prepared for us. Jesus submitted to authority, earthly authority and heavenly authority, so we submit to authority. Jesus humbly worked hard, so we humbly work hard. His job included people wanting to stone him, people who mocked him, people who spit on him, people who beat him, people who crucified him, and he endured the temporary so we can enjoy eternity. So we endure our temporary because we're focused on being with him eternally. Let's pray.